Welcome to the first episode of the Creative Pedagogies podcast. Uh, this is an inside look into Ben Dyson's Creative Pedagogies doctoral seminar he ran at UNC Greensboro in North Carolina. Uh, ben Dyson is a great scholar in our field. He's invited a lot of other great scholars uh, from the field of physical education to join him in this uh in this doctoral seminar. So some of the episodes are a little longer. Some of them are around an hour long. Uh, We'll be launching these throughout the summer every few weeks and then going into the fall to finish out. Uh, We really hope that you engage with these through uh, conversations on Twitter or just sit back and listen in on a great doctoral seminar on pedagogy in physical education. So uh, without further ado, I will let uh, Ben Dyson take this over. And um, today's first episode is with Dylan Landy. Kia ora, tenakoto, 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 tenakoto katoa. Particularly, I'd like to welcome today uh, Dylan Landy from uh, Towson University in uh, Baltimore area, Maryland. And uh, we're very fortunate he's here. Also, he is from uh, Aotearoa, New Zealand. A lot of his research was done there, and I'm sure he'll introduce himself in a moment regarding that. When I first met Dylan, he had come to the University of Auckland and was there to work with a scholar by the name of Katie Fitzpatrick from Steve Silverman's program in Columbia uh, from New York City. And uh, he was an engaging, effusive uh, young man. And so now I can say uh, a few years later that Dylan and I have become friends and colleagues, uh, and he is a rising star in uh, our field. And uh, we will read much of his work in the future, and I'm just very excited to have him here. And thank you for coming, mate. Thanks, Bob. And yes, I guess I better give you a Okay. High five. Now we have to tell everybody. So in New Zealand, nobody gives out high fives. So Ben was like, yeah, mate, high five. And everybody's like looking at his head like, what are you doing? So I had to teach everybody it's a Ben Dyson high five. So if you go to the University of Auckland, people say Ben Dyson high five. <laughs> That's wonderful. Uh, thank you, Ben, for having me. Um, thank you for coming, Dylan. Cheers. So like you said, I'm going to talk about myself a little bit later, but for right now, I just want to introduce sort of a few things. So in uh, New Zealand, um, there's a term called whakapapa, and whakapapa Mm -hmm. is Māori, and it means genealogy. So when people introduce themselves or when they come to a space, they first cite their whakapapa, um, linking themselves to the land, to their family, and basically contextualize themselves with an area. Uh, I'm going to do that in a second, but I want you to do that as well. So with the person next to you, I want you to think about these these things. Um, What are you interested in slash wanting to study? Why are you interested in that topic? And how is your history, who you are, where you came from, affected that? So with the person next to you. How about I do Judy? Is that right? Yeah, and then, yeah, you too, and then I can hang out by myself. It's cool. Awesome. Does anybody want to share their journey, what they're interested in, why they're interested in it? 
Okay, so start from me. So my interest is. Why don't you say your name for the yeah. wonderful thing? Yeah, so for the uh, uh, podcast. I'm nervous. Yeah. So <laughs> relax, mate. My interest is um, uh, innovative pedagogy in physical education uh, that can facilitate students' social emotional social and emotional learning skills. The reason why I'm interested in that topic is because. Um, because I'm from China and also I stay here in the U.S. for one year already, I noticed that uh, both in America and in China, the physical education curriculum has uh, different emphasis. Because in China, we emphasize on the physical side because our education system is only uh, just emphasize on uh, assessment on the physical outcomes. Mm -hmm. So that give a direction uh, that have a uh, deep that have a very uh, deep influence on the physical physical education curriculum and on pedagogy as well. And here in American, it's uh, I just noticed they have they have uh, great emphasis on house knowledge, which caused a neglection of uh, the holistic development of the student holistic development yeah. which what, means <laughs> what's funny is that yeah. us in new zealand and mm -hmm. australia would say that the u.s doesn't have a holistic perspective it would mm -hmm. say it's too mechanical yeah. mm -hmm. so, in china as well yeah it's yeah. but it's hilarious like sort of you know the different perspectives and mm -hmm. views yeah so why are you interested in this uh because it's a little bit related to my background because i was a uh, professional soccer player in China and I played eight years in professional league in the top league in China and uh, based from my experience like uh, in a in a very top level when you compete in the top level it's not about the physical it's not about skill but it's about psychology it's not it's about your emotion how you you know uh, deal with the uh, anxious how you deal with the stress and also it's about social and how 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 you uh, interact with your teammates, with a coach, and also with the media, mm -hmm. and these are very vital for you know for professional players. Uh, so that's why I noticed the social emotional aspects or social emotional skills not only important for students but also important for athletes as well. Awesome. Somebody else. But I think it, it just, I was even thinking of genealogy and stuff and this concept of, you know, what is a, you hear that in sports a lot, what's a team's DNA or their identity or whatever. And my identity is I'm a PE teacher. Yeah. Um, I'm a physical education teacher and I truly think that I, we're important people and I love, I love what I did. I was a phys ed teacher. Uh, so that's why I'm interested in it. I'm interested in physical education, all things physical education, the good, bad and ugly. And I want to find out more about them. Uh, and that's why I'm interested in the topic. I think when it's done right uh, and done well, uh, it can be a subject for good uh, and we can do a lot of really great things with the subject. Um, but I suppose in my own history, how my own history has affected this is, I think, from my own experiences as well, I may have at times done more bad than good. Uh, not too much, not too, not dramatically as such, but, you know, I, I feel that there's ways I could improve my practice uh, in hindsight or in, in reflection and stuff and hopefully that I'm doing improving learning how to improve that I can help improve the practice of other people as well too how history's affected me well I've been very fortunate enough to have uh, uh, studied in the University of Limerick in Ireland 
uh, under some very influential professors as well too. Mm -hmm. So uh, when I how was my history affected me? I'm here because I stand on the shoulders of giants, you know, mm -hmm. some very important people. So yeah, uh, so you know, we're, I'm a PE teacher, but I'm a PE teacher because someone made me one uh, yeah. a long time ago. So I graduated in 2012, and here I am now. Yeah. Mm. Um, it's really important to recognize how our how our history has shaped us. There's a section of my PhD thesis where I talk about how I don't stand on top of anybody because that implies I have a better sight than them. But I like to say that I stand beside them and they continue to influence me in that way. And there's this agnostic agnosticism that roughs us up where we still get challenged even if they're not right next to us. So just something to think about. Somebody else? I'll go. Um, I'm, I'm Jennifer. Um, so I am sort of honored to be seated at this table because I am not a physical education um, or health educator or in the Department of Kinesiology. I am a middle grades math teacher um, and spent 20 years in middle school teaching all of the core subjects, but had a love for the relationship that got built between core, what we call in North Carolina, core teachers and encore teachers. And um, I'm trying really hard to break that dichotomy out. I, it is all important to me in the education of middle grade students um, and the, sort of pushing the limits on whole child, right? So uh, I'm here with in this course with Dr. Dyson because I have a love for creativity and I was influenced I think all throughout my life around creativity. I was explaining to Eddie that um, I, I never had to do the traditional assignment ever. I never wrote a book report. I never did a research paper. I didn't do a master's thesis telling i'm telling all kinds of things about me never wrote a traditional lit review never had to do any of that at any point in my education didn't have to take english 101 i took something else the alternate assignment was always available to me at every stage in my education and i'm not super young i'm you know so having said that i also chose it like let's be clear i didn't have to but I did. I always chose the alternate assignment. And so I'm interested in middle grades educators who are willing to be that person who um, rubs the system of neat and tidy and efficient um, and scripted and all of those things um, that I think um, you talked about in through neoliberalism and that comes through there, who are willing to rub that. And, and allow these creative moments, these creative incidences to come forward? Um, and, and how do they keep an eye out for them as they're going through their day? Mm. Awesome. So thanks for letting me sit at the table. Thanks, Thank you. <laughs> More importantly, yeah, exactly. We have two left. I, I like to put people on the spot, so. Okay. I'm Suhan and uh, I was an elementary elementary school teacher back in South Korea. Um, in South Korea, 
in most cases, generalists teach every subject, including PE. And I spent four years as a novice teacher. And I saw a lot of my colleagues having a hard time teaching PE. And I think the reason why they're having a hard time teaching PE is um, we don't, we don't uh, spend, we, we didn't spend enough time to learn about how to teach and what to teach in PE class. So I think my interest lies in pre-teacher education in PE. So, yeah, I think I answered three questions, right? Yeah, very well. <laughs> and, and actually, one of the mentors that you were speaking of is one of the foremost leaders in mm -hmm. physical education, teacher education. So you two might want to send it over. Yeah. Very good. All right. I'm Judy. Um, my interest, as I joke today, because I still feel that, um, still trying to figure out where I can put my thumbprint into what we do with teacher education. But for today, uh, I am studying, interested in studying the idea of mattering. Uh, I read an article when I took a mixed methods course last fall of a good friend, Karen Lux Goudreau, and it was very impactful for me to talk about the perceived mattering of physical education teachers. Uh, my history, my background for close to 20 years before my current position, I was an elementary school physical education teacher. So I, I bring my history of being in the trenches. And as I read her piece, it was just beautifully laid out. And I could actually see my 20 years of teaching on paper and, and how when I first started at the position where I held for the longest, um, people didn't respect the content, but they did see I could manage children and what the value was for that. And over time, and truly being an advocate for our field, uh, as I always like to say, slowly educate people around me about the value of physical education and, and the benefits of not just healthy children, but how we can have a healthy community based around movement and the enjoyment of movement. So my history of being a physical education teacher, coupled with finding this article, has really propelled me into figuring out ways that we can help pre-service teachers, because that's my current job, training pre-service teachers, but also how do we get teachers who are still in schools, in the trenches, committed to our profession, to feel like they matter, and to find ways that, um, as in my current research, uh, finding out ways that teachers are extremely creative. So to piggyback with Jennifer, I feel like we'll do some lots of research together in the future, but there's a lot of creativity going on in schools, and we have to change the lens of how we appreciate the creativity in schools and what we honor in schools is learning and knowledge gained, and to allow teachers to have the space to find that creativity, but to also foster the creativity with their students. Their agency. Yeah, exactly. What is perceived as agency? Yes. I want you to hold on to that thought because we're gonna we're gonna definitely come back to that, right, and great. it's really important. Um, so, my fucka papa, uh, I grew up in a small section of a small town. Uh, it's called Radburn, which is in Farallon, New Jersey, and this little section of the town was built directly uh, uh, post depression. Well, during the Great Depression, rather, under FDR and one of his programs. And the idea was every single child should be able to go to school without crossing a street. Hmm. So every house backed up to a pathway, and then that pathway led to the school. 
because the school was the center of the community and it was filled with parks and it was filled with swimming pools and different places that you can go. So from an early age, I was in a social setting that really valued physical activity and really valued learning and education. From there, um, I was lucky enough to go to Campbell University in North Carolina. I was offered a full ride for wrestling um, and I blew out my shoulder in my second year. And I didn't know what I wanted to do and I had a fabulous um, uh, advisor there by the name of Donna Woolard who took me in and she was like, hey, I think we could, you know, kind of uh, redirect some of that energy that you have there. And I became a health and PE major. Um, from there, she said, hey, are you thinking about getting a master's? And my immediate reaction, because I grew up working class, was, what's that? <laughs> you don't know what it is. And she had to explain to me what this was. So I applied to different places. And upon graduating, I became a health and PE teacher. Uh, the story that y'all read about was my first year in a private school. I left um, because of the situation that I was in. And then after that, I taught in an urban public school in uh, New Jersey. It's the North Bergen Public School District. Um, and I had an amazing time there. I was a K, uh, K through eight teacher, health and PE. Uh, did that for three and a half years um, on top of my year teaching as a, 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 in high school. While I was doing that, I was doing my master's at Columbia University under Steve Silverman. And at that time, I also enrolled in an EDD program. And what I was interested in was student attitudes towards PE. And the reason I was interested in student attitudes was because everybody who was in the program at Columbia was interested in student attitudes towards PE. So I was socialized into this sort of way of being. But as I said, the last year that I was in that program, I also became the director of the Newark Public Schools Health and Physical Education and Athletics Program. And in Newark, we're a very urban district and we serve particular communities. And these communities have particular needs that are very different than what we offer in health and physical education on a normal basis. And what I started realizing was what we were teaching wasn't resonating with what the students wanted to do, what the families wanted. And it wasn't just the phys ed and the health ed program, but it was actually the whole schooling system. And that's a picture of them rioting in front of the public school systems, hmm. right? So there was this fissure and I realized that what I was studying, what I was doing, didn't agree with who I was. It didn't agree with what I was interested in, you know? One of the reasons why I stopped wrestling and doing sports was because I was a gay guy and I couldn't do it. You know, once you were found out to be gay, you kind of were shifted off to the side. So I had an interest in that. I had an interest in the students that I worked with in North Bergen who were predominantly Spanish, but we were teaching a very, very colonialized curriculum. Mm -hmm. But I didn't know these words at the time. Mm -hmm. And then in Newark, the same thing. So I started looking online and I found out that the University of Auckland uh, in New Zealand, uh, Ben was there at the time, they did something around critical health and physical education. And the person that I wanted to work with around gender and sexuality and health and PE was Katie Fitzpatrick. And Steve Silverman, if you ever meet him, he's the nicest person in the world, by the way. I went up to him and I said, Steve, I don't think I wanna do this attitude thing anymore. I was like, what are you thinking about? I go, critical pedagogy? He goes, I know nothing about that. 
but we'll hook you up with people that do. And he was really good about it. And he put me mm -hmm. in contact with Katie. Mm -hmm. From there, I worked with a Rainbow Youth was the name of the organization. It's a queer, a queer youth organization in New Zealand. And these queer youth taught me more about education, myself, and the world than I could have ever learned in a classroom. And I started taking these ideas that they were talking about and I started writing them down, and putting them in different ways. And they made me reflect on my own experience as a phys ed teacher. And as you were saying, I realized the harm that I was doing and I didn't even realize it at the time. So I wrote down this sort of autoethnography about my experiences as a teacher. And it was quite vulnerable for me. And it, it comes off that way, and I was lucky enough that uh, Phys Ed and Sport Pedagogy made it the paper of the year. So it feels sort of worth it, but like, you know, it, it's, it, it's like a tearing, because now people have a window into my life that I never expected them to. Now I'm at Towson University. Um, I finished my PhD in October, um, and I'm teaching classes around health education, physical education, and how to teach it in ways that are culturally relevant, sustaining, but also critical. How can we move pedagogy from something that is transmitted to something that can be creative? And this started early, this idea. And I always put a picture of my partner at the time. So this is Kiefer. We've been together for almost a year now. And uh, he is a student at Johns Hopkins. Um, in public health, uh, specifically health economics. So he always challenges me to think differently than I always are. So if I could ever give any advice to anybody, be with somebody who challenges you and makes you better every day. Mm. So, um, which brings us to this. Uh, this paper was really interesting. Uh, ben and I were the only Americans, I think, on the floor. Oh no, one other American on the floor at, at the University of Auckland. And all three of us were always there until like 11 o'clock at night because we were the nut jobs. Um, and everybody else in New Zealand went home at five o'clock. Because <laughs> that's normal. We need to, I am a Kiwi as well. Right? Yeah. yeah. So I'm a dual citizen mate. Yeah, but you've been, you've been socialized. <laughs> so one of these nights uh, he said hey i'm doing a special issue on models based practices and we don't have any criticality in it and i want you to you know maybe throw something together and i'm like oh yeah that's a good idea little did i know you know that was a brilliant idea so thanks ben <laughs> and uh thank you for accepting uh, so in this paper um we started off and i want to recognize that katie fitzpatrick is part of this paper and Haley mcglashio are part of this paper mm -hmm. and they really challenged our own thinking we went back and forth here i started with this quote physical education once again finds itself at a at a point in crisis philosophical dispositions and societal trends are conspiring to rob our profession of its soul the nature and meaning of kinesiology is in danger of being lost it is the contention of this author that a philosophical pragmatism and a cultural materialism coupled with an overriding concern for health and wellness have engendered this crisis. What Hawkins was saying here is that as a field, we tend to go with the whims of what's going on around us. You know, a few years back, it was the obesity crisis. You know, nowadays we're dealing with mental health. Um, and I'm always wondering what the next issue is going to be. And we kind of tag our, our porch here to what's going on. And 
we were kind of worried about this because we thought that models in particular sometimes take on these things and they reproduce them. But then we started thinking about why were models even created? Well, the reason was to get rid of the dominant model of physical mm -hmm. education, which was called the multi-activity model, right? You teach a sport for a week or two, you never learn anything, and then you go to another sport, you never learn anything, you go to another sport. Um, Kirk referred to this uh, as uh, PES sport techniques. You, you don't even play the whole sport. You just learn the technique in the sport, and then you move on. So people stepped up. Um, seed and top, probably the most famous or quote-unquote well-tested model, as we say, with sport education in the U.S. Uh, Bunker and Thorpe from the University of Loughborough uh, offered TGFU. And the goal of it was to shift things from this multi-activity model into these newer pedagogies that can provide different experiences for students. Even though models are being used in different places, we still see the multi-activity model in many different places. So we have to realize that models haven't done everything that we wanted it to, but they've made considerable strides in doing that. So I use uh, Hasty and Casey's term here. They say a model is a blueprint which describes certain procedures for organizing content task structures in the sequences of learning activities. I call them as sort of package deals. Um, they kind of package up theory with different pedagogical activities, and therefore they structure the learning environment in particular ways that reflect those needs, those aims, those bases. And these are some of the models that have been out there. You've talked about cooperative learning. I think Ben knows one or two things about it. Uh, sport education, um, TGFU, TPSR, Sport for Peace, um, Kathy Ennis, who was a professor here, um, ABL, um, now it's the activist approach uh, with Oliver and Kirk, mm -hmm. physical literacy with Margaret Whitehead. But I want to talk about what models really are, right? And we're going to focus here on Metzler's quote. Um, I might have to steal this because I blocked out my own stuff. Uh, it says, models are designed to be used for an entire unit of instruction and includes all of the planning, design, implementation, and assessment function for that unit. Models are like blueprints that provides a detailed set of written and drawn plans, including instructions, measurements, locations, and materials that help both the architect, who is the model creator, and the builder, who is supposedly the teacher, understand what the structure will look like when completed. And it allows for efficient and correct decisions to be made during the building process. So the first question I have is, how do you think teachers are constructed if that is the way that models are understood? How do we view teachers in this way? You can say it out loud, it's okay. Uh -huh. They can just follow the instruct instructions without any ju judgment or any thoughts. Yeah, right. So efficient and correct decisions. So if decisions are correct before they even walk into the gym, then what's the purpose of them thinking anyway? They've already been developed. This isn't to say that models are a negative thing, right? And we're going to talk about this. But this is to say, if models are set up in particular ways, they have the ability to overcome and overthrow pedagogy and instruction. And the question then becomes, should models take over the field? 
which has been proffered. There are people who believe that models should be the only way that physical education is taught. So in this paper, we kind of looked at three different models. We looked at Spark PE, Hope, and Sport Ed, and we looked at the limitations and the benefits of each one. But in particular, we're also concerned with models that are focused specifically on health and health only. We use three different concepts. The first one is striated space. Um, striated spaces, I think about as regulated spaces. So if we look at this room that we're in, and if you're following along over there, <laughs> you see the tables in the middle of the room. So can we walk through the middle of the room? No, the table blocks us. So we have to move around in particular ways. That's what striation means. It's the way that things are assembled around us that restrict our movements to go in different ways. What are examples of striations in teaching physical education or health education? What are things that regulate what you can do? Curriculum. Curriculum, first and foremost, right away. You have certain objectives that you're supposed to hit, so then your movements are regulated. What else? Policy. Policies and practices. Not only can they restrict what you can do, but they restrict what you can't do, right? So uh, in New Jersey, for example, there's 150 minutes of per day for phys ed. In Maryland, they do not get that. So how can we say that you know, we can solve all these issues when you see your kid once a week for 40 minutes? What else? See, pedagogy. What do you mean by that? I mean, the way that, that teachers organize the students during the activity can stratify their space. Right, so the students are, uh, the students are assembled yeah. through the striated space of the pedagogy that the teacher uses. The history of pedagogy in our field striates the way that the teacher teaches. Mm -hmm. We all do things that have come through. Mm -hmm. Any others that we can think of? It's okay if not. Budget and facility. Budget, facilities, and assessments are the mm -hmm. three major ones, right? Mm -hmm. You know, what we have access to, what we don't have access to. So the point is here that I argue, and we argue, that physical education is a highly striated space in many different ways. But we also say it could be a smoother space in many different ways. A lot of times we're not, as you were saying about meaning and purpose, we're not as highly looked at, you know, if you're hitting all your objectives and things like that, we kind of can skirt under, if you're in the US in particular. The other thing we looked at was something called healthism. So healthism was coined by Robert Crawford in 1980, and it's still um, very much relevant today. And it's the preoccupation with personal health as primary, often the primary focus for the definition and achievement of well-being. So instead of health being a social issue, Rather, it's an individual issue, right? And we especially think about this in the case of obesity and cardiovascular disease. We tend to look at people who look a particular way and we say, oh, they're lazy. Oh, they're not, they're, they're not working out. But that's very unique when you think about it, right? When you think about disease, for example, we take a public health approach to it, right? If we know that it's in the waterways, we do things to purify waters on a macro level. So why then is something like obesity that is, some would say relevant to physical education, uh, why is that an individual endeavor? When you look at the pedagogical practices in physical education, we give fitness tests. 
We measure students' BMI. Um, we have them do a, a, a personal fitness log. If you look at the Shape America standards, a lot of them are saying you will take individual responsibility for this, right? And we often forget about how there's a social responsibility involved with that. Can you think of any other ways in which physical education tends to put things on the individual in many cases? It could be health education as well, or just regular. How are people graded? School, uh, fitness and skill tests. By what they can do. By as, what they can as do. As an individual. How many sit-ups can I do? How long yeah, can I do the flex time hang? How can I show my age? All those things, right? Okay. Yes. Imagine if we thought of physical education not as an individual endeavor, but rather as what we could do socially as a class to improve in particular ways. What would assessment look like then? Where we don't put one person on the spot, but rather we're collectively responsible for each other's well-being. Collective group score, many cooperative learning structures, uh, Dylan. Right. I, I support that pedagogy 100%. Right. But the way that our education system and the mm -hmm. way that physical education, health education, very much pushes things onto the individual. Mm -hmm. And I argue that this is linked to neoliberalism. Mm -hmm. And there are four main points of neoliberalism that we're going to talk about today, but there are way more. Mm -hmm. The first one is that unregulated markets produce competitive and open atmospheres uh, in order to increase productivity in many cases. So what does that mean? The less that we regulate things, the more competition occurs and the better people get, okay? Just a thought. But the other thing is that they're talking about that well-being needs and all needs shift from a public thing, so something that is state, over to private market. So this could take the you know, corporations, this could take on uh, individuals. When we think about this, you know, in some countries, they provide free uh, uh, recreation centers for their people. In the US, it's business-based. And the goal is the more businesses that are open, then it drives down the price back to that open regulation. But what we know here is that not everybody has access to fitness centers and not everybody has access to these things. So it creates inequity because of the openness of it. The also though, is that the only way that the system can survive is if the government supports it. So how many times do we give tax breaks to large corporations and things like that? So the government consistently pumps back money into these organizations and things. We're going to talk about that in a little bit related mm -hmm. to physical education. But the noticeable thing is that this contextualizes. So the way that neoliberalism looks is contextual and it will be different for, let's say, health and fitness clubs and physical education than, you know, the motor industry. We can skip that. Um, all of you know pretty much about Spark PE. Maybe, maybe not. It's an off-the-shelf curriculum. Um, it's been, it, it was created for California, uh, in which case a lot of elementary teachers actually teach um, phys ed. They have uh, four curriculum models, K2, three to five, middle years, and high school. They cover everything. You don't, you don't need to plan. They, they got you from kindergarten all the way to high school. But also now it's expanded into teacher education. So now they offer a elementary methods classroom and a secondary methods class 
for university physical education teacher education programs. So you see how this assembles it into an entire program. Now, these models, according to Spark PE, are prescribed word-for-word -word things that have specific assessments. They also have task cards and posters. The assessments tell students that they are at risk and that they need to change their behaviors. If you do not do this, you are going to become this. They also relate it directly to personal choice. They give students fitness logs and tell them that they have to do things according to this log in particular ways. They completely neglect any talk of gender, any talk of socioeconomic status, any talk of sexuality, any talk of race, any talk of ethnicity, all these really important factors in health, by the way. But what it does is it shifts the burden of health from the state onto the individual. It produces consumers of health. But this is my favorite part about it. Spark, the system, was built, created using NIH federal tax mm -hmm. money, grants. Mm -hmm. So all of the US citizens paid for this program. Mm -hmm. They created it. And now, for us as the citizens, to get access to this thing that we paid for, for each one of these, it's $400. So if you are a school district like I ran in Newark, and you have 75 schools, and 60 of those 75 go cover K through eight, that's $1,200 per school. So this is a program that the government created through their uh, uh, programs and grants and they continually sustain because then your tax monies as residents here pay for them to continue going. So you see how PE is assembled in this neoliberal and healthist perspective. Hope is similar, right? Oh, go back. I can do it. Yikes. What can I do here? Thank you. I should be able to do that. Now, I have to say that this section was predominantly written by Katie, so if you have an issue with it, go to her. Um, <laughs> the overarching goal of HOPE curriculum model is to help P12 students acquire knowledge and skills for lifelong participation in physical activity for optimal health benefits. I want you to notice that in, in there. Optimal health benefits. Now, the other part that I'm finding funny is that HOPE is unique in its prioritization of this overarching goal and makes direct attempts to achieve by not promoting other kinds of learning that are thought to indirectly lead to increased participation in physical activity. So forget about physical education for sport. Forget about it for pleasure. Forget about it for all those other things. The goal is to optimize health. Do we see how healthism has striated this model? So the other thing that's interesting is that it's conceived as an entire program. It, but the funny part is, is that it rests on the assumption that there's certain particular behaviors that will lead to this, and they talk about this. It's they prioritize and promote high rates of MVPA, right? And then they want to teach parents, guardians, other families how to promote PA. What we found funny about this is that this was actually written about in the 1990s by Richard Tinning. Mm. 
And he says, since the early 1970s, PEs ha has been a strongly influenced by the new health conscience. This was impetus for an increased emphasis on the element of health-related fitness within PE curriculum. He refers to this health-driven perspective as hope, 20 years before the HOPE model came out. And he uh, says, the acronym <laughs> HOPE is meant to be a pun. Ironic. Because these programs and initiatives are based more on hope rather than a sound understanding of the significance of the context in all educational endeavors. The point that Richard or Tinning was making here is that health is very complex. There are so many factors that go into it, and PE is only one small strand of it. And even if we did everything in the world to align to health-optimizing physical education, we wouldn't be able to even touch these other things. So we need to see PE as more holistic than that. And the last one we talked about was sport education. Now, I've talked about sport education before. Do all of us kind of have an understanding of it? It's built into seasons. Seasons have schedules. There's a preseason, regular season, postseason. And in many ways, these are very much striated according to neoliberal views and they're striated according to health views. But what's unique about the sport education model is that they're also open spaces, cracks where the lights come in and affect can be produced. For example, in New Zealand, there was, this, there was a teacher there who used Olympic games. So he would say, your team China, your team uh, uh, United States, you're gonna be team Samoa, and you're gonna be team New Zealand. And then he gave the budgets that were equivalent to the Olympic Games out. So China, you get this amount of money. US, you get that amount of money. You get, sorry, this much money. And then you get eh, a little bit of money. <laughs> and then he said, okay, if you wanna practice, you have to rent the field. And they made the field this much money. So who could afford the field? The big countries who couldn't afford the fields. But within the sport education model, there's a sports council. So the sports council would get together and they would problem solve and they would say, is this fair? Is this equitable? And the answer is no. How can we make it more equitable? Do you see how sport education has this open space for other ideas to be integrated into it in order to address issues like socioeconomic status? So this is the argument that we're making. Will models alone solve the PE crisis? Absolutely not. Because place matters, context matters. Sport education, for example, was created in the 80s. That was a very different time period than it is today. It is inconceivable to think that that model, the way that it was created in the 80s, is relevant today. It needs to be updated and it needs to be integrated. And that is what we're saying. <laughs> Models that have that openness, and I argue cooperative learning is one of them, TPSR is one mm -hmm. of them, they allow for these things to occur. Whereas models that are based solely on health, that are so striated and so regulated, actually stop creativity and they stop these things. And, and you can ask uh, Peter Hasty and Tristan Wallhead when they present Sport Ed these questions. So it's good to have some continuity with our work. 
that it just doesn't stop here. Yeah. So the point that we're making here is that the, the current models, the way that they're offered, do not address larger social issues. And they need to be open enough for us to integrate these things into it. And some could use a sociological perspective, some could use a critical perspective, some offer the socio-emotional learning perspective, mm -hmm. but they need to be more open. Because at the end of the day, we have to ask ourselves, when we do these models, what are they doing for students? But isn't that interesting because you talk about how um, the role of the teacher is to reproduce whatever the model is, right? But I don't say that. The, it, well, in the, in the article, right? And then, but then the role of the student is, well, there is no role. Right. Right. And so it, it, we wouldn't even think about what this is doing for them because, in fact, it's kind of not about them. It's about the educator in the room and how much trust and how much respect and how much leeway and how much perceived agency and all those things we give or allow that then come in these forms of these scripted or not so scripted models. Right. And I, I think what uh, both broke my heart and endeared me to <laughs> this is that this is exactly what happens in other areas, right? Math has gone through a very similar thing. State of New York gets $30 million to write Engage New York and write a K-12 and beyond program that's free to the public, but not really. And now they're turning it around and now you have to pay for it, right? And it's prescribed and it's every word and it's this and it's that. The American Reading Company does exactly the same thing. I mean, we've been fighting. So I had hoped, I think, in my very naive way, that Encore, again, PE people, had been saved from this. Hmm. They, that somehow this was a core problem. So, and it's not. So Deleuze and Guattari, and we're talking about something else now, mm -hmm. um, but on that, uh, they talk about how we have little micro-fascisms in our body. We like order. We like regulation. We like being told particular things. And how we have to resist those things. And the, we have to resist them because that's the only way for something new to be created, right? Because if we now follow the scripted dominant model, like we've done, yeah, things become easier, they become more standardized. But I argue that physical education should not be standardized. Physical education in Hawaii should look different than physical education in Baltimore. Because we're serving different students, we're serving different communities, and we have different needs. I had a, a chat with a guy named Rod Philpott, he's at the University of Auckland, and his statement would be, I don't want the McDonald's of physical education. I want the best Italian restaurant, the best Japanese restaurant, the best uh, 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 seafood restaurant, whatever it is. And his point was, if you go to a McDonald's in New York City, or if you go to one here in Greensboro, you're going to get an all-beef double patty, sesame seed bun, maybe, you know, pickle, uh -huh. special sauce. And fries. But and fries, but that's not the way it should be. We should have places and we should have uh, programs mm -hmm. that are the best in one particular or two particular things. And that's okay. Well, it's what it should be. Yeah. That's what we want. Yeah. So the reason why I bring this mm -hmm. up then, why does this matter? So we need to conceptualize mm -hmm. PE as a space that is creative and produces new 
So come back to your PhD. Come back to why you're sitting here right now. You just had that conversation. Why you're here. What's your interest or that focus? How is what you are doing creating something new or not? Why is it doing this? And if it's not, and if it will, what will this new creation do for the field of physical education? Think about that for about a minute, and then we're gonna to talk to the person next to us. So just what will this new creation do for the field? Yeah, so what will your focus, what will your study, what will your PhD mm -hmm. or whatever you're interested in, mm -hmm. what will it do for this field to move it? So we have to realize the models that we were talking about earlier, they were created mm -hmm. to do something. They were created in order to move away from a multi-activity approach. Mm -hmm. So what is it that you're studying? What is it that you're focusing on? What is that gonna do to move the field forward? In the same way that Sport Ed did, in the same way that Cooperative Learning did, in the same way that TGFU did. Deleuze and Guattari, they say, you don't know a body until you know what it can do. So think about that. What do you want to become of what you're doing? Because you're spending a lot of time on it. This is gonna be a few years of your life. We want more time to talk about it. <laughs> for, for me, Dylan, it's it's a pursuit of uh, imperfection, in a lot of ways. Um, that I think you know we have these we have these models and we have a lot of pedagogy and stuff that we present to, in, to to trainee teachers and that we go out into the field and we implement and we put into practice. Um, but you know, other than what we've learned, do we ever learn anything after once we get out onto the field? Uh, and we coined this phrase as well recently about the teacher as the tragic hero, uh, which you might know from English or from Shakespearean terms, noble but flawed. Yeah. So we want to do well, but we don't, you know, the more we, good, we, we do bad things and the more good we try to do to fix it, yeah. the worse it goes and it ultimately ends in our own downfall. Yeah. Uh, and I think we need to be careful about positioning teachers as tragic heroes. Yeah. I don't think, I, th I think maybe some people were, were guilty of doing it a lot in the field and even listen to your position universe that this is happening everywhere yeah. it's not just happening in physical education and we can't keep beating ourselves on the head about this because a lot of this neoliberal stuff we're talking about happens all over the place yeah um but i think if we can help teachers to recognize the imperfections and they shouldn't be seen as well if you're not do teaching this model the right way and you're not teaching this to fidelity you're you're, you're the tragic hero you're you're flawed yeah you know and people aren't robots so i think if we can and i'll just finish yeah. this bit now Rant will be over soon. I like it. But if, if, if and I talk about a pursuit of imperfection, is we need people to recognize that how can I, what is happening here, and what is it that I need to do to respond and react to this to improve this situation? So, you know, you're never fully formed, or you're never fully, uh, you don't never fully have a handle, I suppose, over, which is scary in its own right, I yeah. suppose. But, mm -hmm. you know, how is it that we can help teachers, or how can I help myself to realize I need to do better here? or I can actually improve this. And yes, I have this model, but it's not really working and I can tweak it a little bit, but if I tweak it too much, it's, you know, and what can I bring forward the next time? So to me, I, I, I have one idea that I want to respond to and then I want to 
say my funny thing now. You know, you talk about the fidelity of a model. That's actually an entire line of research now, is seeing how, uh, uh, how well models are followed. Right. So when we think about that, how are how are teachers kind of constructed there? Do we do we trust them or do we see them as that tragic era that you're talking about? But what you're talking about here is reflection and teacher reflexing uh, reflection. So thinking about what they did, but also being reflexive. There's a difference between the two. Anybody know the difference between those two? This is a hard question, by the way. I think of reflexive at, in more in the world of flexibility than I do in reflection. I can think about something and not actually change it, but mm -hmm. I'm still ref, I have still reflected upon it. But there's something in about reflexive that in, implies that it's it's changed. So you can be reflect reflective and still change it. Right. When we think about reflection, we think about what did we do? How can we make it better? Right. So. Maybe it's a model. Maybe it's the way that we spoke to a student and we reflect on it. And we're like, wow, I really could have handled that better. Or wow, I did that really well. That happens once in a while. <laughs> Reflexive, on the other hand, is thinking about power relations. You know? So looking back on something and thinking about how power operates within that space. What role do I have as the teacher and how am I structuring that class? How did my young women and girls feel in that class teaching a sport where majority, quote unquote, masculine, toxic, masculine, early men dominated it? I went, I went the other day to a, 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 a supervised student and they were playing a game of basketball. And I started counting the touches between the men and the women. And it was up to, I stopped counting at 57 to two. So there were 57 touches for men, two touches for women. And I was like, okay, we have an issue here. So I thought about that in relation to power. How can we shift what we're doing in order to shift the power relations? So to me, what you're talking about is teacher reflection and teacher reflexivity. What, can they, what do they have the power to change? Can they change it to make themselves quote unquote better? And how can they improve in particular ways? And I think Maxine Green is sort mm -hmm. of the person mm -hmm. that I think about when I think about. Right, and also it's uh, in the context of where you are to be able to understand the power relations. Yeah. So how do we get ourselves and teachers to think reflexively and reflectively? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So like I, I listen to, you know, we're, we're in a pedagogy class and we're talking a lot about pedagogies and pedagogy mm -hmm. of hope. Yeah. <laughs> a pedagogy of hope. Uh, Ian Wright, when I was studying in college, talked about a pedagogy of possibility. Yeah. Yeah. Carol Lugetti. Sorry. A pedagogy of a pedagogy love, of love, love. And physical education. Mm -hmm. So we can start coming up with pedagogies of all sorts of things. But you know, I, I talked during the week about you know perhaps it's a pedagogy of self and a pedagogy of truth. I don't you know. And again, mm. is it that our teachers able to actually critically reflect? And what's happening in front of them, and who are they? What are they basing their reflections on? In your paper, you critically reflect, or you reflected on your own experiences in in your school, yeah. and you know, as you said, bore bore all for for all to see. Yeah. Uh, and I don't think you know, I don't think we do that enough. Yeah, I certainly didn't do it when I was a teacher in a in a high school, because um, it's a very difficult thing to do. Uh, and also, if I'm reflecting on something. 
who's helping me to do that? Yeah. So I can look at something and so go, go, I got that wrong. Yeah. I won't get it wrong the next time. So again, but what happens when someone else goes, well, you actually, you got, got this wrong. you not necessarily got this wrong also, but you did this right also and stuff. So there's a relationship between teachers and students and their dynamic in a classroom that needs to be followed up as well too. And that sounds like a PhD. Right. Okay. Right now? Write <laughs> 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 it! Give me the paper. Yeah. <laughs> Do you see what I'm saying? Yeah. yeah. That's what I want you to think about, is what your PhD and what these years of work that you're about to do are going to do. And if it's to find better ways to help teachers reflect, which we all know is extremely important, or to even map mm. the ways that teachers reflect now. Mm. Yeah, I think that's a worthy, needy project. Mm. And one that could transform or shift, or be innovative, or create, creative for the mm -hmm. field. For sure, uh, the the, the uh, pedagogy of reflection, critical reflection, and the pedagogy of be becoming reflexive. Mm -hmm. Since we're talking about pedagogies in this class, <laughs> what are others? By the way, there's no wrong answers. I had a history teacher once. I won't mm -hmm. say his name. He used to say, there's no such thing as stupid questions, just stupid people. <laughs> I never asked the question again. <laughs> I'm like, okay. <laughs> and you might not know this, and that is okay. And just talking about it is good. So for me, it's, it's not for PhD or dissertation. At current, what I want to do is I want to try to use, because, you know, we have proper learning, we have sports, and I, I, try, I try to want to apply proper learning in sports. Why? Uh, the reason why is uh, because I'm a soccer player. And also uh, soccer, these sports, is very popular not only in America, but in China as well. Especially in China, it's, soccer is becoming a part of physical education. It is pushed by the Chinese government. Mm -hmm. And the central government invested lots of money in soccer. We call it campus soccer program. So I don't know why, because, yeah. So, so what does integrating cooperative but, learning into soccer do? Yeah, so the, the, the problem is, I'm not talking about US, I'm talking about China right now. So in China, uh, so when the teacher, I mean the physical education teacher teach soccer in their physical education class, they only teach skill, techniques, and nothing else. They just teach the student how to make an inside pass and how to make a one versus one. Mm -hmm. So yeah, so it's, it's only about skills, only about physical and maybe cognitive. But it's nothing to do with their social motion aspects. So what I want to do is because corporate learning, this model is have unique strengths to you know facilitate students' interpersonal skills and communication and you know uh, some emotional uh, aspects as well. So I think uh, because not so many people know how to use corporate learning in soccer. Mm. Because we all, we, so many teachers and coaches know how to teach soccer at the skill aspect, but they don't know how to uh, integrate the social emotional aspect in coaching soccer.
or teaching soccer. But why is that important to you? Why is it important for these students to learn those things? Oh, I think social emotional learning is a vital skill for students' success, not only in school, but also in their future life. So that's important. Maybe in the future, they might not be play soccer, but those skills, how to interact with other people, how to cooperate you know, with other people, how to share ideas, how to listen, and how to show empathy, these are vital skills for their future life. So my question back to you then, in this case is, whatever you do create, this cooperative learning, socio-emotional learning, mm -hmm. assemblage, combination, should it focus less on the sport of soccer or more on the pedagogy to which you want to teach those skills? And how can it be applied to soccer and to other sports and to yeah. other activities? Because if that's the goal, yeah. that long-term goal, uh -huh. okay, that's what you want to do. All right. Yeah, yeah. And how can you do you that? You mean it's like transferability? Or what you mean? I'm saying that if your goal is life skills for 30 years down the line, uh -huh. kicking a ball may not be the thing yes, that does yes, it. Yes. Mm -hmm. So focusing on how to use human movement in kicking that ball uh -huh. as a way to develop yeah. those other skills that you're talking about. Mm -hmm. And cooperative learning could be the model by which you do it, but it seems that there are other skills through socio-emotional learning that you have to integrate with it. Just like Dan integrated the socioeconomic status and things mm -hmm. like that into sport education. And thinking about how you can do that. You don't know what it does. You don't know what something is until you know what it does. If the goal is at the end to produce those skills, those life skills, mm -hmm. then that's what you need to figure out how to do. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So uh, I think for me, how to achieve these goals uh, I mean, in corporate learning, there are many stru uh, structures. Mm -hmm. I just try to screen all the structures and narrow down what can be applicable in soccer. And, and the ways the inno innovation or creative, cre creative way, creative point is how to design the content, you know, the soccer content into these structures how to flow them, like uh, integration, so. But also the skills that you want them to achieve. Yeah, yeah, sure. Yeah, and putting students first yeah. and having them have a say in that. What are others? Well, and also having the students, because obviously a key component of corporate learning is student-centered. Mm -hmm. So having the students drive it, and ideally having the students create their own skill development tasks their own modified games so that, that they can actually take some ownership and want to get into it themselves rather than it being teacher directed. Okay. So shifting it to them. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, we've got a lot of discussions to get in the next couple of years about that. Thanks, Dylan. Others. Um, recently, um, philosophy of teachers pops up in my mind because um, when I was, uh, when I, 
when I was in my first year as an elementary school teacher, I thought I learned some kind of knowledge or skills in pre-teacher education. But everything I faced as a novice teacher was a whole new thing. I couldn't use knowledge or skills that I learned in my pre-teacher education. So I, have, I think I had to make a judgment, a good judgment for students. But I didn't know how to do that. So at that moment, I felt like philosophy is really important for teachers to make a good judgment. So these days, I have a lot of time mm -hmm. looking back on my teaching experiences. And I'm thinking about what a quality physical education is. And in quality education, how what kind of philosophy teachers should have and how we can provide, what we should provide with teachers to grow as a teacher who can make a good judgment in philosophy in quality physical education. Do all teachers have to have the same philosophy? No, I don't think so. Mm -hmm. That's the question, right? Mm -hmm. I think... Um, Building their own philosophy is needed for every single teacher. So, you know, I kind of feel, you know, on this ground at UNC Greensboro, you know, to me, somebody who made a lot of headway in that is Kathy Ennis. Her value orientations and seeing what we value and how that influences the pedagogical choices that we make and how we even see our students, right? She uses um, a direct or direct style, direct instruction, which is tend to uh, reflect curriculum as a factory, right? Where you see your students as these things to be produced and boom, versus somebody who is more uh, social justice or social emancipatory. Uh, 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 and they see the curriculum as more of an adventure or a journey where the students get to explore and create meaning. I also think of the work of uh, 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 Green, Ken Green, and mm -hmm. how teachers have everyday ideologies. But what does that do? What does developing a philosophy do for the field? That's a hard question. <laughs> um, and you don't have to have an answer to it. But that's what you need to think about. Mm -hmm. How does that help teaching in particular ways to know that? Mm -hmm. No one said it was really easy. Okay, next person. All right. Um, and it is six thirty. We've got an hour to go. Just giving you a time check. Oh, plenty of time. <laughs> Another paper. <laughs> we'll get through. <laughs> <laughs> I'm giving Judy a delay. Give you, me a little, you yeah. Judy? I'm trying to figure out how I can keep this brief. Um, so I think about going back to your questions on your PowerPoint. Um, 
and I, and you know, like today, right now, today, this is what I'd like to discuss, and, and I'm going to have to commit to something, so we're going to have to stick with this topic, right? <laughs> I have her on a timeline. You don't She's understand. Like, we're on a very strict We are on a timeline. Yeah. She's going to have to make a decision now. She's on a mission here. The hourglass on your graduate, right? Oh, my goodness. Come on, get you up. What does the hourglass do? Let's train his left to The people with podcasts listening, they can actually see my timeline that we have. Uh, a visual representation for it. Yes, we do. Yes, we do. So I guess you know, next going, week. Next week. Yes, that's it. So uh, going back to the um, the idea of mattering and what I'm hoping to discover, I, I've I've learned that with mattering, I'm I'm coming out of the counseling research and um, again Karen's paper and and with her colleagues who started the conversation about mattering with physical education teachers. But I think for me, and this is. As I always say, I, I will always identify as an elementary physical education teacher. I need to know what my kids are thinking. And I think, and, and I know it's a challenge with research, but I really want to cap to just really highlight student voice. And I think when we think about models and the pedagogical decisions that we make, oftentimes we truly, oh, I think my kids would really enjoy this, or I see the benefit with kids. So why can't we get more student voice um, aside from the challenges of IRB, I understand that, totally aware of that, still trying to stick to the, to the timeline, but we need to put in this idea of being reflexive, the power of me as the teacher, I need to relinquish that and honor the student voice, because isn't this what it's about, developing them to be active physically for a lifetime? Mm -hmm. I did stay with George Grimm, so I definitely will use that tagline often, but we're making these decisions based on what? And so going back to my idea of creativity is giving teachers a space to truly explore the meanings of what they're creating and providing for students, coupled with hearing what students are saying about, and it's not so much saying that students are gonna say, you must teach it this way, but I need to know my students and the students in Baltimore versus the students in Columbus, Ohio. Mm -hmm versus Blacksburg, Virginia. You know, we need to have these different perspectives that we bring in, but I think in, in, in my role as a teacher educator, um, you know, I use children living, talking about the Philippines approach, but I don't want my students to keep producing what we have been producing for so long. Take an idea, create it to be your own idea, challenge the idea, but, and, and I thought it was so refreshing uh, in your paper where we talk about it's time to look at the sport ed model developed in the 80s, honor the basis, but let's redefine it. Let's redevelop it. Let's not just reuse it in 2020. Let's make it more applicable, make it more relevant. Uh, I know a lot of times we talk about the cultural rele relevancy, but there's a lot of different areas of relevance that we need to explore in physical education. I want to go back to your student voice. Okay. Why is that important to you? Let's start with that. Well, I, I think if we're going to allow students a space to learn about themselves, they should have a place where their voice is honored and valued in the process. I don't want to create teachers who are just going to continue with the cookie cutter formations of whatever pedagogy means to them as a result of finishing their teacher education program. 
I like the first part of what you said. If we want students to learn about themselves through movement, mm -hmm. through these concepts. So to me, that seems like what you want PE to do is to provide a space for students to better understand themselves in relation to their social world. So going back to your tagline, mm -hmm. how do those two things jive or not? And is that your tagline? Mm. Yeah. So I think with, you know, the idea of that being a result of the education that I received, we do take on different things from our mentors. And we take that as the valued knowledge that we're moving on. And we have to learn to honor it. It's led us on a path. But then we also need to, need to redefine that path because we're the ones walking that path exactly. and creating that new path. And maybe finding out about yourself leads to that path that Dr. Graham was talking about. Mm -hmm. The reason we're all here for very different reasons, right? So we, our purpose of physical education is very different. You know, I could talk to, you know, the perfect example is uh, Mackenzie and Salis. They refer to physical education as the pill not taken. So they refer to physical education as exercise prescription. Right? They believe that through physical education, the world can be a healthier place. When you read Daryl Seedentop's 1996 Quest paper, on the other hand, he says that physical education should do three things. Overarching this one, value the physically active life. Okay? He doesn't say lifestyle, he says life. And he says for that to happen, you need to be competent, right? So if you go to a sports game or something, you can understand what's going on. Or if you wanted to do physical activity, you are skilled enough to do it. You are critical. You're able to look at this and critique it and recognize that, hey, not everything is fair for everybody, right? Being able to say, the way that this is set up is not fair for you or for me. We need to then make changes to it. And he says that this is what creates a value. And the argument that I say when you value something is in 20 years when your students, if you're an elementary PE teacher like I was, becomes a voter and the town says, we want to spend $20 million on a rec center for children, but it's going to raise your taxes by $5. If that person values the physically active life, do they vote for it? Notice, he didn't say you had to be the most physically active. He said you had to value the physically active life. I love that statement. I would argue there's more equity involved because that's who I am, right? And I bring my lens. Mm -hmm. But that's what David Kirk has sort mm -hmm. of developed yeah. and Kim Oliver, and they've buoyed off of that. But the point is, is that we all have different ideas and you have to figure out your own. Best advice I ever got was from, uh, in regards to my thesis, was it from a guy named Darren Powell. He says, once you find the what will your thesis do, right? Well, I use that term. He says, write it and put it right above wherever you're working. 
So every time that you write something, if it's a paragraph, if it's data that you're analyzing, if it's you know, an interpretation, you bring it back. What is the purpose of this? What is this supposed to do? So once you figure out that why, put it up. Mm -hmm. I think you, you mentioned what your why was earlier, but I want to see if you still feel the same way. I'm not sure I did. Um, I, I mean, I think I want to come back to a bunch of things that folks said, like, um, Donald, you used a word earlier today, and I'll get back to it in a minute. I, I want that word to go away. I want, I want efficiency. Oh, fidelity is the word. Mm -hmm. I want efficiency. I want fidelity. I want optimization. I want all of those words. Fidelity is okay in a relationship. It is. Okay. It is. <laughs> <laughs> but I would, very true. But I like fidelity uh, to not be the word that I am judged, that I am um, evaluated upon in my classroom. Yeah. How's that? Um, and so hmm. I, I want, I think that, what I would like to say that I was going to do for the field is get teachers to see that, yes, you can set in front of me the latest and greatest model that falls under gold standard science in any way we want to talk about it. And I'm going to sit with it and now go, is this going to work wholesale for me and for my students? I don't actually care what's happening in Baltimore. I care what's happening right here, right here, right now in with me. I need the folks in Baltimore to care about what's happening in Baltimore and is have them sit with it and say, I will not go into this blindly anymore. That I have the my own sense of creativity or innovation or anything else the the what came before, right, to bring me to this point and say, and now I'm going to make it mine. And make it mine for the young people and the voices that are in my room and in my space. Sounds to me like you're really interested in teacher agency. Very much so. With, with, a, with a definite eye for the creative end of that, right? Which is I, being, uh, um, sorry. My brain gets ahead and my mouth can't keep up. Um, yeah, I think it's a courage. I think it's a courage to um, believe that what creative means for me is not what it would mean for you. And to look at, at um, this, these ideas that, um, that there is a general creativity is really not the best or true. Um, John Baer's work in domain-specific creativity has proven time and time again that I can show you how to be innovative in soccer and it actually won't help in rugby, right? But if I show you enough different domains, you will start to build um, connections. And so suddenly it's that I was um, creative in table tennis and creative in rugby, and creative in poetry that let me suddenly find the moment that says, okay, now I can be creative here. Um, and so, yeah, there you go. And what will that do for teaching? Well, I would love to believe that it would elevate all of us.
in a way that we haven't felt in a while. I'm not sure that it's new. I would like to believe that it was old and that somehow, um, that again, it got lost inside of efficiency and standardization and optimization and all those words that say, let's rank order every child in the US and find where the top ones are and where the bottom ones are and everyone in between. So my supervisor, um, who uh, Katie Fitzpatrick, she, she's one of the best scholars I've ever worked with in my life. And I'm not just saying that to say it. Um, she does that. She she integrates different ideas. She's she she writes. She she she's a poet in different ways. Um, but something that she did, and it was her doctoral thesis, and she wrote a book from it. And this book won an award: um, Critical Pedagogy, Physical Education, Urban School. Is the name of it. She found a teacher who did that, and she followed him and saw all the ways in which he created a critical or innovative or transformative pedagogy and he and she then followed the students and talked about how the students interacted with these pedagogies and she represented that because it's a representation it's a re-presentation in a way that was ethical and honorable to those people but in so doing not only does it give us hope but it also gives us ideas mm -hmm. And it gives us ways forward that we can be that affective. And that might be something you look into. Yeah. Finding that one or two teachers. Right. Okay. Asking yourself why you're doing this is the most important thing. And once you decide on what that is, you always come back to it. Because this is gonna be a grueling process. Writing your dissertation is grueling, but it's also the most rewarding process. So figuring out what your why is, putting it up on top. My why has always been to make physical education and health education and sexuality education especially a better place for those who it hasn't been for young women and girls, for LGBTQ students in particular, especially for me, and for people who don't identify in particular ways. Like I see, when I was in Newark, young black kids and young Spanish kids hating phys ed because it was taught from such a structured way that was based off of colonial ideas. And we recognize that when we teach that way, we're actually forging and we're forcing people into different identities. We're erasing people's cultures. And that's where this paper started for me. It was a reflection on, as you would say, how bad of a teacher <laughs> or the harm that I did. And I didn't even realize I was doing the harm. And I was reflecting on it. And I wanted to do justice to that. Which leads us to the second paper, Toward a Queer Inclusive PE. So just to give you an idea, the majority of research on LGBTQ issues in physical education has been with lesbian physical educators. And what we know from the works of Di uh, 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 Jillian Clark, uh, Pat Griffin, uh, Sherry Woods, um, I'm missing somebody. Diane Gill. 
fan gilded attitudes um, of pre-service teachers and uh, exercise science towards um, uh, towards LGBTQ folks, and also LGBTQ folks' attitudes and perceptions in sport and physical education climates. First person to ever do that um, pathfinding. Uh, and Heather Sykes. And what they found was teachers were verbally abused, they were harassed, they were vandalized, cars ripped apart. Uh, just being called a lesbian as a teacher could get the teacher fired in the early 90s. Um, and they felt uncomfortable touching students and being in locker rooms with students because they were so vulnerable. Um, but what I find interesting is that you know, what was interesting is that a lot of these phys ed teachers, they remember having uh, uh, crushes on their phys ed teachers when they were in school. So when the tables were turned, they realized like, oh wow, like I, put, I could have put somebody through a lot of stress when I did that. But when I was reading through this, I found that there were binaries in everything. And what I mean by binaries are two things, dualisms, opposites, right? So in, out black, white. Here it was, they had a public life who they could be publicly and a private life who they were allowed to be privately. They were in the closet or out of the closet. And we all know that's not true. You can be in with some people, out with others, there's a continuum. And some people know, but they don't know. And straight and gay. I also found that in our research, uh, Lesbians, gay, well, there was no research on gay men, we'll get to that in a second, but it was treated as a natural identity or that you were born this way, right? Um, and that's a big contention in the field. You know, we don't have 100% either way, but what we do know, it's a combination of these things, right? Like the leading uh, science right now is that it could be hormone levels of the fetus uh, when it's in the womb, right? Um, Another thing is, you know, where they're located and the way that they're brought up. So there's different ways about this. You know, the, the, the best example of the nurture is um, men um, who have sex with men who were straight, they went into prison. And then when you're around only other men, you have sex with other men. And then when you leave, when they left, they actually identified as gay. So there's ways in which our sexuality is fluid and the ways that, you know, these things are not just so simple to put into cups. And the last thing I found was that everybody left the body out of it. They were like, let's not talk about the body. And it was so weird for me because we're physical education and we're a field that's really focused on the body. <laughs> so I was like, where is this body? Um, Schilling referred to this as the absent body. So GAP, um, thank you, South Park. Um, Clark claimed that the lack of uh, research on queer male experiences is a sad indictment of much of the physical education profession in wider Western society. When I wrote this paper, um, there was only two other papers that I uh, discussed uh, gay male teachers, and they were both uh, ethnographic fictions. So they were fiction stories written from the perspective if somebody were gay in a school. Um, I want to outline my affective experience and I'm gonna talk about that word affect because it's very different here. Uh, I drew on Deleuze and Deleuze and Guattari and I mapped subjectivities, ontologies and epistemologies. I'm gonna do a really quick 
down, dirty, disgusting representation. This is not the truth. Don't believe it. So <laughs> subjectivities, a lot of time we refer to them as identities, right? It's the way that we navigate our place, right? That we're subject to particular things, but we're also, um, we're navigating those things. So we have quote unquote an agency, but we're also structured in particular ways. Usually we sit that on the top of the pyramid, you know, underneath that, the things that inform our subjectivities are epistemologies or knowledges about the world. So what we know about what it is to be a boy, what we know about it to be a girl informs us about our identities or our subjectivities. You see how it's like this deep down sort of idea. And then there was a belief that below epistemologies, which is knowledge, we have ontologies, which is the nature of the world or matter, like physical matter. You know, the belief that, you know, DNA kind of does that. But what we found out was actually, no, it's not that simple. Because our subjectivities often change our ontologies or our knowledges. Best example of this is, you know, what it is to be a man and woman in this country versus other countries and other things. Um, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give you an example of something. You tell me if it's a man or a woman. This person is wearing uh, shoes that have heels on them. They're wearing stockings, frilly clothing, a wig, and makeup. Guy or girl? Good reaction, girl. Girl? Girl. Girl. Dolly Parton. Yeah, Dolly Parton. I was explaining George Washington. Do you see how gender changes over time based on things, material things, like socks? But they also change on knowledge about those socks and who wears them. And subjectivity is the way that we navigate ourselves. So instead of seeing this as a pyramid, the list says we need to see it as flat. And they all influence each other. He refers to this as an assemblage, which we'll get into. These are the uh, really cool French dudes. Um, they wrote four books together, uh, A Thousand Plateaus, Anti-Oedipus, which was, um, as it says, anti-Oedipus, uh, What is Philosophy, and I can't remember the last one, because, sorry, I have three. <laughs> what is it? Uh, the concepts that I use, one is assemblage, and the, the, the idea is it's a collection of heterogeneous elements that function together. So. By heterogeneous elements, we're talking about physical elements, this mouse, knowledge-based elements, what we know about the mouse, right? And then the subjectivity, how I use the mouse. And all of these things come together and they produce a certain situation. I wanna see if I have another slide. Most of the time I do. Good. So the way that I understood this is the body is an assemblage. Our body is made up of material parts, right? We have cells, we have a heart, we have organs, and those organs come together and they function together in relation to each other to produce us actually living. So you see that it's not just these things that are together, but they have to have relationships to each other. And through those interactions, they produce what we can do. But our body is affected by our subjectivities, right? So one of the earliest anthropological studies talked about how women in New Zealand 
who are part of Maori uh, culture walked in a particular way because they were taught to walk that way as women. Um, men sometimes walk differently than women do. Uh, if you go into an elementary school at an early age, young girls are taught to cross their legs and young boys are taught to spread open and take over. So the body itself is affected by knowledges of the body. If I did something, I don't know, like, ah, we'll see. There was nothing physical about what I just did, but her heart rate jumped. <laughs> he had an O coming out. So my subjectivity actually influence your material bodies in particular ways. Do you see how they're imbricated and they interact and they produce the world in particular ways? Physical education comes together, curriculum knowledge affects what equipment we buy, which affects what the students can do. These are all assemblages and they come together to produce something. And that means that connections or the relationships between these things are important because they tell us what they can do. And we refer to this as affect. They're, they're saying is you, you don't know what a body is until you know what it can do, right? And he gives the, the idea of a, a, a tick dropping and like sucking blood and things like that. We know what a tick can do. It sucks blood. It, it attracts the body heat, right? It doesn't help if we describe a tick. It helps if we know what it does. So for this, I allowed the connections between things to guide the research. I looked for those parts, those affects, those intensities, what Maggie McClure refers to as wonder in the data that make you do what you just did or what you did. And I let those guide the research rather than creating a model by which to look at their research, in which I go, oh, this happened and then this happened. I rather said, what was that intensity? And what did that intensity do? What were the more interesting things that occurred? I did an autoethnography, you can read more about it. Uh, I wrote a lot of memos about myself, my stories, and I, I put this particular story on a student who uh, really affected me ways. The first thing that I found is that I was biophysically assembled. I felt that I had to align physical education to the medical field because that justified who I was. It, but in so doing, the affects of this reinforced gender, which is different than sex, as naturalized differences. So the affects of me aligning myself to a biomedical pedagogy meant that I expected men to do more muscular things and I expected women to do more, you know, quote unquote, aesthetic things. I expected men to score high on fitness tests around muscular strength compared to women. I set up different standards for men and women based off of my quote-unquote biomedical ideal. Well, it's natural for women to be weaker than men, which we know is not true. The overwhelming amount of men and women overlap, right? But the point here is that cultural knowledge 
is assembled in relation to biomedical knowledge and produce certain quote-unquote truths about the world that affect who I am as a teacher. They affect my students. They affect my pedagogy. And they affect the subjectivities that can be expressed in that class. So here I was, a queer male teacher, heterosexualizing and expecting students to follow specific gendered lines. But there was a student there, Geraldo, who had affect, intensity, wonder. He queered the scientific body by performing flamboyant movements. At one point, I referred to him as Elaine dancing in Seinfeld. He pushed back on scientific practices and said that has nothing to do with who I am as a human. He used his subjectivities as, a, as an ostensibly queer man and his body, his material body, to push back on what I was teaching. He's saying, this is heteronormative. I'm not playing with it. But then he actually affected me as a teacher. He made me realize what I was doing. So I then was like, I love this. <laughs> and I let him subvert it. And I let him do these different things at different times. They affected who I was. I often talk, and um, there, 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 there's a Andres Gracie. He, he talks about being seduced to your students, not in a sexual way, but being seduced into what they do, their knowledge, and how they do it, and allowing them to amaze you. Allowing them the elbow room, as Emma Reynold would say, to create something new and to change who you are. And that is what Geraldo did for me. So here I was saying, biophysical or biomedical knowledge it assembles PE content along very narrow lines. And by creating these narrow lines, especially around gender, it heterosexualizes. It expects students to be straight. So I said, we need more queer teachers and more queer students. And not just people who identify as LGBTQ, but people who express and I say something to the effect of having a relationship with a man is not what makes me queer. It's my hours and days of experience in queer settings and queer places that make me queer. I go back to Katie and I go back to Richard Pringle as my other supervisor. These two people both have partners of the opposite sex. They queer things up so easily in a room. They, they make you rethink about gender and sexuality. They are, in many ways, queer. Haley McGlashan, the second author on this paper, she teaches sexuality education. First of all, she portrays an androgyny to make you guess her queerness purposefully, her sexuality. She's like, they're like, okay, what's going on here? You know? And she queer spaces by making LGBTQ the norm rather than the, the, the secondary or the third. 
So that's why we need queer subjectivities and queer knowledges. But the third thing is, we need to focus on affect. We need to focus on what we're doing and how, what, we're, what our practices and what they do, rather than trying to force students into being one particular way. What is it like to participate in something for pleasure, rather than being told this makes you healthy? Um, in my thesis, which is a little separate than this, obviously, a great example of this is um, young girls uh, in physical education were expressing, you know, how they had their period, and a lot of the teachers basically tell them flat out, "Too bad." Uh, being physically active is good for you. It reduces cramps. That's what the teachers tell them. And this is a biomedical view that affects the way that these teachers treat young women and girls without even considering what their feelings are, what their subjectivities are. Granted, I've never had a period. I do not know the pain, and I will step back, and I will not, like make any assumptions about it. But for me, I think that privileges knowledge over humans and their experiences. We have to think about what those types of experiences do. What does that tell young women and girls? That was what they said about young uh, uh, women in relation to female teachers. Interesting, male teachers were like, get out of here, I don't want to talk about it. Right? So what does that what does that teach about it? That it's disgusting. That it needs to be repudiated from this space, this natural occurring thing. So thinking about our pedagogy, thinking about our words, thinking about what we say and what we do. So I want you to think throughout your PhD, throughout this. Why are you here? What affects are you going to produce? What intensities are you going to generate in yourself, in, in students, in the field, in curriculum? And how will the PE assemblage, the material, the psychological, the social, the knowledge, the physical, how will this assemblage, how will all these different pieces to this huge puzzle be a better place because of you and what you're doing? You don't know what a body is until you know what it does. So, I guess we'll find out through your journeys, through your careers, what you are by what you do. Figured, you know, we'd have time for questions. See that timing? Yeah, no, it's great timing. And I know everybody did bring questions. Or so if you just want to discuss other things. So maybe, maybe you have new things that you feel yeah. that you're and affected by. Right. And everyone did bring questions. So there may be questions or concerns or issues that people haven't brought up. I have plenty of issues, but...
That's another story. <laughs> That's between me and my therapist. <laughs> Tell me all, but you share a little thing here and there. Uh, so, yeah, I have a question. So, uh, here we go. Go ahead. Based on my experience, sorry to mention that all the time. And because no, I was, I love um, that. I was, I was a PE teacher yeah. in China, in one university. And there's, when I read this paper, it's uh, like, uh, it's all, for me, for my understanding, it's all of equity. You know, every, everyone, no matter who you are, should have a place or enjoyable place in PE, and no matter your gender, your sexism, or your class. So, reflection on my own experiences, we had, I have a colleague, and he was a, a strength and conditioning teacher. He teaches strength and conditioning. And he refused to re-enroll female uh, students. And then the department, our department, PE department, the leaders allowed him to do that. So all the girls are banned from registration for the strengths and condition class. So what I mean is it's like there's no policy to say that the girl student cannot register for strengths and condition. But it's all based on the concept or perceptions or perceptions of the teacher himself. So what I want to ask is how can I how can we to improve this kind of inclusive PE at the uh, PTE level? So the physical education, teachers education level. So how can we teach our pre-service teachers to let them know they are not only you know, they should also consider uh, our an inclusive PE. So what should we do in that PT level? And I think my democratic way, does anybody have an answer to that? Mm. Anybody have a thought on that? Uh, controversial, but one that I just came across today and I'm sitting in a, a democracy and education class in the university here at the moment. Mm -hmm. And this is not necessarily my view, but I'm teasing it out. Uh, and the notion of what is it, what is it, what is there in a democracy? Uh, and for the female students in your class or the students in our class that are marginalized or put aside or are not made to feel that they can express themselves uh, in our classes, um, you know, we're, we're failing them, you know, uh, big time. Uh, and we spoke about, you know, the, 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 the two words came into play and it was from a, a, an article from 1932 by uh, Counts. Uh, dare the schools build a new world order or whatever. But he said that we need to actually accept the words uh, imposition and indoctrination and not be, sca not be scared of them in a democracy. Mm -hmm. uh, and that for us as teachers, it is completely impossible to be impartial. Yeah. And we, there's, there's, we can't walk into a classroom and not impose our, our views or our ideologies in some form or indirect, implicitly, complicitly, explicitly on our students. So does there come a point here somewhere and I don't again this is probably this is a little bit controversial but we teased it out in class and I don't necessarily have to answer myself maybe you can help us is there come up come a point where you know these types of words like impose and imposition and indoctrination we need to come like draw a line here and kind of say well this is the way it is you know what I mean that this is how my classroom this is what is you know this is the way things are done in my classrooms this is what we believe in this is what the society I live in or that the majority of are part of believe in and stuff like that. And again, of course, 
things can, you know, can a teacher do that? I don't know. Can a school do that? Can a district, can a state or district do that and stuff? But again, like, you know, the, the, do we, or are we kind of beyond the point here now, Dylan, where we actually do need to think about, in, like, and again, the, use those words lightly, imposition and indoctrination, where we need to start kind of saying, you know, if we're going to really democratize our classrooms, we need to kind of start saying, well, get on board, you know? Are you saying that schools don't do that already? That they don't indoctrinate, impose? Well, they do. No, they, they, they do, of course, yeah. But I'm asking, what is it that we impose and indoctrinate? Yeah. You know what I mean? So, yes, this is occurring. And obviously, because of what's imposed and indoctrinated right now, we have these issues, mm -hmm. you know? So do we, you know, look at these aberrations or whatever of our uh, classrooms and stuff and Geraldo there and what he brings to a class. Do we look at this as an aberration or we just look at this as, this is Geraldo. Yeah. Get over it. You know what I mean? But I know that's easier said than done completely. Like, you know? So the question for, for me that you're asking really is, you know, it is a question about indoctrination or uh, imposition. Yeah. So do we believe that our way, quote unquote, the democratic way, if you want to say it, if we have to go out and say, we do need to indoctrinate this or impose this, and my argument would be, would that just be another model? So we're, we're, in essence, it's almost, we're, we're, not, we're not prioritizing this as such, but we're giving this a kind of a lip service thing, is it, or a token, I don't know. I think that indoctrination and imposing happens in school. The whole purpose of schools is reproduction. Right? Yeah. We have a certain set of values. We want the students to learn these values and then they move on and certain knowledge as well. And then they move on and go forth. The difference is in the United States is that we tend not to say that. We tend to say, no, no politics, no values, nothing like that in schools. Meanwhile, the whole thing is run by it. I think, and this is just my opinion, which we all know it's for shit. Um, sorry. <laughs> um, for shite. For shite. Thank you. So, um, I think that it's one thing to learn about values. It's another thing to critically analyze values. I mean, critically analyze values contextually is very different. So I think it's the approach that you take toward it. And the way that I do it is going to be different than the way you do it, the way that you do it, the way that she does it. So am I for saying do it my way? That's no, no, I'm not, I'm not saying that. But I think I know, I know. I just saying. think that you know we, especially physical education teachers, need to because of the spaces we in, in, we we exist in with our students, where the body is ultimately on you know it's on display. It's on display. Is that we need to bring bring it bring our game to this, yeah. and we need to bring it to the gym or yeah. to the classroom, like you know, in in so many more ways than a teacher might have to in another room where people sit down and wear a uniform. And they conform as such. But going back to his question, if we're bringing that game or bringing those practices, what does that look like in teacher education to make it more inclusive? I keep going back to, I think it's the end of one of these articles where you talk about the teacher having to be willing to transform themselves in as much as they want to transform the students, right? Yeah. And so I think if what we're going to do is make these spaces more inclusive and then and then the teacher has to be willing to see it that way as well. And that, that comes with 
experiences and times and opportunity and um, and that's really hard in a you know time crunched standard packed standards driven mm -hmm. teacher education program mm -hmm. yeah doesn't mean it's right just is and so how do we break that then to back to my efficiency and optimization of our grading and TPA portfolios. We're assembled in particular ways. Yes. But how do we use those particular imaginations of assembling to subvert things? I mean, do you think that I go into my classroom and say, Ed TPA is fabulous. We're all going to do this. <laughs> or do you think I teach the students that this is going to be a common experience. You're going to be asked to do things that you don't want to do. And what you have to do is you have to see how much of yourself that you're going to compromise in this. And are there ways that you can fulfill what they're looking for while still being true to yourself and being critical of yourself and of the system? It's a, it's a negotiation space. Yeah. We need to teach them now so that they can do it later. Because if they can negotiate something like a TPA, then why can't they negotiate these other prescripted and prescribed curricula that come their way? So I guess what we just talked about we is... We just solved all the world's problems. Yeah, yeah. Uh, <laughs> all one way that we can teach things to be more inclusive is through reflection, um, but also teaching students that they can navigate systems rather than feel like they have to go through walls or give themselves up to the system. Other points? I think that point really connects to the first piece we've discussed tonight. And I really, and I've asked myself this question, and I love this piece, and it's, uh, I believe McDonald talks about teachers have to be brokers, knowledge brokers in this environment. I love that. But then my question is, how am I, how am I using that in my own program? And how am I getting students to understand um, what is this knowledge and what knowledge are we valuing and what knowledge are we starting with? And, you know, my question that I, I was, as I was reflecting on the reading is, you know, the whole, and connecting back to models. So how are we infusing this idea of developing this knowledge workers and we would teach the models, but then is it enough to teach the models or are we having a, or we have, do we have the opportunity to get students to decipher how the, neoliberal discourse exists among the models and how we're able to teach the models. So we don't have to deconstruct the model. So then maybe we can revise and renew the model. Mm -hmm. So it's an interesting cycle that we have to impart on our students. <laughs> and then of course, going back to the whole idea of being efficient with our time. And it's no secret that peak programs all over are uh, being compromised and cut and, you know, we have a lot to do in NTPA, and if, if your state chooses NTPA, and if it's not NTPA, it's a different type of system. accountability system that all goes back to. Thank you, neoliberalism. You got to prove our, our worth and wealth. Um, I'm going to admit something. I wish I could turn off the order now. Can I <laughs> yeah. do that? Just admit it. And, uh, so, Drew McDonald wrote that piece in 2015. Talk about being vulnerable. 
when I was head of the Newark Public Schools, the reason why I know so much about Spark PE is because it was employed in the Newark Public Schools. And I used to run professional developments with this program. So we would have to hire somebody to come in. I would oversee the whole thing. Like ready to cry. June McDonald was visiting Columbia as a visiting scholar. And she said, I would love to see this. And she came out to Newark and saw everything that was going on. Hmm. And it was a moment for me of embarrassment, contempt, like, what am I doing with my life? When I saw her looking at this going, this is fascinating. Because she saw all the neoliberal machinations at play. And as I was reading her paper, I'm like, oh my God, she's referring to my teachers. Because my teachers had to be knowledge brokers. Because we offered them all these different professional developments and they had to decide which one was best. And that's what it was. So that's my most vulnerable moment of the night right now. <laughs> um, wow. Yeah. And when you think about who I was at that point to where I am now, that transformation is possible. So how can we make it more probable for more people? And I guess I was taking the perspective of, you know, and with our pre-service teachers, we want to start to introduce them to professional developments and, you know, uh, NC Aford, which is now NC Shape, and uh, getting uh, folks to understand to go to a conference and to be uh, independent and autonomous in your learning and your choices. And, and I want to get my students to not fall into, let's go to the next big activity section to find the best activity that I can you know, I go to a conference, I go Friday afternoon, but this is what I can implement on a Monday because it's new and it's, it, it's more than just having yeah. that activity. And, and, and how do we... And the, the, to add to that, there's a neoliberal layer to it. And the neoliberal layer is twofold, right? So you have the, the, the now the Pete student as the knowledge broker. Which session is best for me? They have to broker that. But let's add the other layer of this. We know North Carolina AFERD or SHAPE North Carolina and SHAPE Maryland and New Jersey AFERD and all these different programs, they're bleeding right now. They don't have money and they're trying to make money. So in many cases, they have to let in all of the presentations because if you're presenting, what are they gonna do? Pay a registration fee, right? So now, there's no sort of like standard by which we accept or don't accept things. Then let's add a second layer to that. Who else shows up to these conferences? Vendors. Vendors. And what do vendors do? They push their products and they get sessions. And those sessions, not vetted by anybody, are the ones that are attended the most. You know why? because they give away free, give away free stuff. Yeah, that's a Teachers want free stuff. So, so now we have the, the neoliberal machine at play. With conferences, absolutely. So just think about that from 30, 40 years ago when it was about these are the best teachers 
and we want these teachers to show other teachers or these folks are working in universities and they're up to date with the most innovative pedagogies and we want to we want them to show the teachers to now oh you're going to pay me $500 right this way <laughs> Well, and that leads to, Judy and I have talked a lot about ed camps, right, and that the unconference yeah. um, and the unconference model. And I, we are talking about how to build that yeah. just as sort of almost like as a professional development model yeah. with educators to sort of move away from the, the, the PLC terminology, right, and move it into this more you know, educator as expert and bringing in, you know, the, and the college people and, but no, there are no vendors at an ed camp, nope. right? There's no, there's no one there selling. There's no one there saying, here are all the things that we're going to talk about. Right. And so you get to choose ahead of time. Like none of that happens. It all gets born sort of in the moment. And it does feel like that might be a way for us to, and they're, and they're doing it. Right. I mean, we're not, talking about anything that doesn't already exist, but it, 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 we have to keep pushing. We have to keep suggesting that, um, you know, to move away from the, give me this something new, get, what can I get for free? And how can I, you know, what did you give me? And what stress ball did I walk away with? Or, you know, what have you. Um, because again, I feel like that's going in blind. It's the blindly following um, what the next slickest piece is going to be. How to move forward from there. What's hot? What's new? What's That's catchy? Right. What's, right. What's that awesome activity? Kids will love it. I have to go back and do it Monday morning. And how does it really fit into student needs and what my kids need? Like you said, great. This curriculum from, I mean, I think about some of the classes we've taken. Let's talk about Texas and how mm. uh, textbooks and all that. <laughs> all of, That's a whole other podcast, right? Mm, yeah. Um, but is, you know, you looking at those influences and, and uh, who's making the influences, look at that. Uh, I can't remember the name of the piece that we watched. The Revisionaries. Thank you. And uh, just the, the, all the political polls and, and what's dictating the decisions that we're having to make in education, getting away from what it's about. But I do think there's a tremendous, and I feel a tremendous responsibility being in teacher education because we have to be able to give them those correct tools so they can go out and navigate this space so different than from when I graduated, you know? I just had to graduate from an accredited program. I happen to stumble upon a wonderful scholar who is still my mentor today. But I think about what students today have to endure to do what we all want to do and what we're passionate about. Yeah. To walk through the door. Yeah. That we didn't have to do. And, and not to piggyback you on you, Judy, because um, you're, you're the one with the most experience here in phys eds, in a phys ed setting as well, too. Uh, um, but you, I know you spoke earlier about the importance of the student, and what the student brings to the, the context yeah. and yes. stuff, and the unique perspective of the student. And you've touched on this as well, uh, Dylan, and you just, as well as yeah, you, in, in, your, um, in that paper you talk about to do so, teachers must be open to being transformed just as much as they want to transform their students, but vice versa, students should be open to transforming, um, uh, tra students should be open to transforming teachers as much as they expect to be transformed. By you yeah. understand the, yeah. the, flick, yeah, the flipped disposition yeah. I'm trying to explain there. Uh, I think that's massive, Yeah, you know? Uh, and you touched on it earlier and talked about it as well too, and we can often lose sight of that, I think, as well as that. 
you know, we need to learn from them too. And we need to listen to them and what they're saying. I love doing these things. And the reason mm -hmm. I love doing them is because I learn more from sitting down and listening to y'all talk mm -hmm. than you probably learned from me chatting. Mm -hmm. um, I have at least five new people that I want to go look up and read, especially one from 1932. Um, <laughs> <laughs> right? But like, what was that like, Ben? <laughs> oh, <laughs> wow. Well, I ain't playing this game. I am not playing this game. Thank you, Donald. I was just going to uh, support your position of the student voice, <laughs> how we don't recognize that, and how maybe it's coming back to the, the uh, philosophical position that and the critical position that Dylan is talking about in his papers, that we really need to know what this, these pedagogies can do and or what they, they have the potential to do. So it's that pedagogy of the possible that you mentioned earlier. And without, I mean, you have to determine what, where you're coming from, but obviously there's a focus with Judy and with you and myself with student voice because we see them at the center of what's going on. In remembering that it's an assemblage. Assemblage. And what that means is that the affects or the pedagogical work are not just on learning. It's on psychology. It's on the, so the socius, how the classroom operates. It's on the material. It's on the body. So we have to think about how what we're doing is not just producing or learning outcomes. But we're having affects, we're making, we're producing pedagogical work on the way students think, how they feel about themselves, what their bodies look like, what their bodies are expected to look like. We influence social norms, gender norms. And all this is tied up in that physical space. Trying to map that out is difficult. So what does that do? in putting students first. One of the things that I've been reading a lot about in sort of Vygotskyan theory, right, is that it's, it's as much about the creation of the environment as it is the product that gets made, that gets created out of the environment. And that one of the things that I love about those theories is that it, um, like Piaget talks about developmental stages, right? Mm -hmm. And so you sort of slide in, this is way dumbing it down, but you slide in and you're somewhere in this stage and things are happening, right? Mm -hmm. And you're, but you're, you're moving in and out and all those things. And Vygotsky would say instead that the, that the development is leading to the learning. And so again, it's this idea that we're creating these ecologies that are all these systems, built of these assemblages, which is almost how I see them, right? And they're all interacting as well. And, and how, do we, how do we look at and understand what's happening between these students and between the teacher? But recognizing that development and learning are not dichotomous. No, not at all. They affect each other. Correct. Learning affects development, development affects learning. Mm -hmm. They're intermingled. Mm -hmm. They produce particular imaginations. Yes. Yes. And we don't develop linearly. No, not at all. We oscillate. We go back and forth. And I would, I would, I would almost rather talk about it in a wave. But yes, right? It's an ebb and a flow that yeah. happens. It's an oscillation. Yeah.
That's great. Okay. Uh, any last comments? I know we're at the 12th hour here and but everybody's done a wonderful job and uh, commenting and presenting on this pedagogy that we're, we want to work on. Thanks, everybody. Yes. Thank, you. Thank you. Thank you.